If you have your Bibles, you can grab them, you can open them to the Gospel of John, Gospel of John. If, uh, if you're new here, if you're on a device, you can go to the ESV version, English Standard Version, and you'll be able to keep up with us on that format. We're, we started our series through the Gospel of John last week, went through verses 1 through 18, took a really big chunk. We're going to take a shorter chunk today. We're going to take two verses. We're going to back up a little bit into verses 12 and 13 and just unpack those uh, for this week before we move on. Gospel of John, I'm going to pick up with verse 1 right now and just read us all the way through verse 13 if you want to follow along. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So we're going to stop there, and we're going to unpack verses 12 and 13. Remember last week, if you were with us, the Apostle John, one of the 12 disciples, he introduces us to Jesus. If you go to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they start in a different place. So we have these four Gospels which chronicle the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. And John is a little bit different because if you start in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, they kind of take us through a bit of Jesus' birth and maybe his timeline a little bit. Whereas John just gets right into what he is primarily going to focus his words on, which is the life of Jesus Christ and the teaching of Jesus Christ. So he introduces us, these first 18 verses, right into the person of Jesus, who he calls the Word made flesh. And what that means for us, what we unpacked last week, is that Jesus is God. Jesus is the true light we just read, and he is the one who, who dwelt among us. Remember we said dwelt among us literally means he, it's like he pitched his tent among us. He came to be near to us. In fact, his name, Emmanuel, means the God who is with us. So God sent his son, Jesus, to be near to a people who were far from God. That's us. And that's what John presents us with. He wastes no time doing it. He gets right into it. He says, this is who Jesus is in all of his glory and majesty and magnificence. So what we want to do this morning for a few minutes is just step back Spend some time on these two verses, verses 12 and 13, because they really are a part of the, what we might say, the spiritual outworking of John's purpose for writing what he wrote, which he states in chapter 20, verse 31, which he said, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John says 20 chapters later, by the way, in case you were wondering why I, you know, penned this magnum opus. 
that you're all reading right now. This is why I did it, so that you might believe that Jesus is who he said he is, that he's the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, this is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome years after Jesus lived and died and ascended to heaven. This is Paul writing, and he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of this good news of Jesus Christ, even though it's going to cost me a lot in life. I'm not ashamed of the person of Jesus, the message of Jesus. But he says this, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So what Paul is saying is the gospel, this life and this death and this resurrection of of Jesus Christ, it is, he is the power of God for salvation. And that's really what we're going to unpack uh, this morning in verses 12 and 13. You know, in a couple of months here, most of us are going to come downtown and we're going to be a part of the Christmas tree lighting ceremony that we do every year. It's a fun event. Um, and really what we're looking at when they finally hit that switch and the tree, we're all praying it actually lights up and there's you know, nothing malfunctions. Um, but what those lights are, are a demonstration of the power of something. And for us, it's electricity. They're a demonstration of the power of electricity to make the tree beautiful and to make the tree breathtaking so that we all go, ah, you know, like when it all flips flips on. Jesus is that demonstration of the power of God. And so here's what we want to understand about the power of the gospel. And it's this, we are conceived as children of wrath, but through faith we are reborn as children of God because it was God's will to save us. And that's what John points out here in verses 12 or 13. So the first thing that we're going to look at is that we are conceived as children of wrath, not what you were hoping to wake up to this morning, right? Gosh, Ronnie, I mean, you you dress like it's all cheery and fall, and then you come off with that. But when we look at the beginning of this verse, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, the reason why it's phrased that way, we got to get into that. We don't want to mess with that. We want to be clear on what's going on when it comes to our salvation and the state of our souls, which brought Jesus to doing what he did to change the state of our salvation. Like, we got to be honest about that. We got to get into it because the scriptures are super clear about it. But to all who did receive, who believed in it, the reason why it's phrased, but to all who did, is an indicator that all do not receive and believe in the name of Jesus. So this, this indicates that we all have a spiritual condition. Listen to this really closely. This indicates that we, you and me, have a spiritual condition that we didn't get to, but that we were born into. And there's a huge difference. There's a universe of difference between those two lines, right? You were born with a spiritual condition that you just didn't get to. You didn't just mosey your way into the wicked person that you became, but you were born into it. Nobody is born sinless and then develops over time into sinners. So we bought a Jeep 15 years ago. I don't know how long ago it was. Uh, 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 Myself, us, and a friend of ours, we bought these simultaneous Jeeps at the same time. That was a weird way I just phrased that. And um, gosh, uh, 
our friend's Jeep was, it was fine. That thing just ran like a top. It was amazing. Ours was not. Ours was a total lemon. They were the same year. They were the same model. They were next to each other in the lot. And yet ours just did not perform. It came off the assembly line, predisposed to failing and costing us two engines. And just, uh, yeah, everybody groans on that one, huh? Um, and really, I would say a, uh, what felt at the time a lifetime of grief for us with the Jeep. Um, our spiritual condition is even worse than that because Jeep replaced those two engines. They fixed it, right? But we can't fix the condition that we were born into. Here's what the Apostle Paul said about this in, in his letter to the Ephesians. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, and we're probably going to stay camped out because... Ephesians and what Paul says in Ephesians 2 helps us really get into the nitty gritty here of what John is saying in verses 12 and 13. Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3. And Paul writes and he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, those who are disobedient to God, who don't follow him. And then he says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I didn't make up that whole children of wrath thing. It's not something I got from like the, the latest Thor movie, right? That's scripture for us, right? That... By nature, we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And that just, that brings up questions for us, right? So when we see what John is trying to tell us, but to all who did receive and believe in his name, it brings up this idea that this is something that has to happen to us because it's not something that happens to us upon conception and birth. And so the question then says, well, how can we be born against God? How can we be born against God? It's hard to look down at a baby and think by nature, a child of wrath, right? Until they throw a tantrum in the middle of Walmart and you go making more sense now, right? <laughs> but what scripture tells us is that we are born with a sin nature that is against God because we come into the world with a heart that has not been transformed to desire to love or obey God. Like Paul just wrote in Ephesians 2, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, right? Now it doesn't mean that we all act out the most heinous sins against mankind that have ever been committed, right? That's not what that means. Sin has the potential in all of us to escalate to the highest levels of evil. We've seen that throughout history. We've seen that in recent history, right? But it does mean, and what Paul here is pointing out, is that sin is hereditary. What it does mean is that sin is inherited in the same way that we, you know, inherit our family's medical history. We didn't ask for that. I didn't ask for my family's medical history. But because I contain my DNA of my family inside of me, both sides, it means I also inherit those things that I wish were a little better and I wish uh, didn't lead me down particular paths 
of physical realities. But the fact is, is that I inherited my family's medical history. So your problem, my problem, is that at our core, we don't desire or choose God until he chooses us and changes the desire of our heart to what John says, receive and believe him. Listen, it is literally the saddest storyline ever written. Until Jesus comes and rewrites the story. And he changes your heart and he changes my heart so radically that you then say, I receive you, Jesus. I believe in your name now, Jesus. You've probably watched a movie or you've read a book where the character's life just ends in tragedy and you hate it. And you wish you could just change the ending. Has ever happened to you? You just think, if I was the author, I would have rewritten it. I would make everything be okay. There would be a, a happily ever after ending. That's what Jesus does with your story. That's what he does with my story. It begins with a funeral scene. You know those movies, those shows that you watch and it starts with a funeral and you're like, well, this is going to be a cheery one. That's how our life begins. But it ends. If you are somebody who has received and believed in his name, it ends with everything being all right forever. Not at the absence of any pain or any suffering or any tragedy in this world. I would be lying if I told you any differently. I might be rich and on TV too if I told you differently. But that's a lie because that's not what scripture teaches us, right? We see that Jesus suffered. We see that his followers suffered. Different levels of suffering. They go through different things. But we know because of the world that we live in and the state of the world that we live in due to the hearts that live inside of us, stuff happens. Bad stuff happens, right? But that's what Jesus does with our stories. It begins with a funeral scene. It ends with everything being all right forever, someday. And that's our hope. That's what we are expectant for. How is that? Well, because secondly, through faith, we are reborn as children of God. Look what it says in verse 12. There who all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If you want to stay in Ephesians, I'm going to go to verse 4 and it says this. And this helps us unpack what John is saying. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when... Man, those are really important words. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. The reality is that your sin creates a spiritual chasm between you and God. If God wasn't altogether holy, he could tolerate your sin. 
Pretend it isn't a thing. Let bygones be bygones, right? Which sounds great some days until you realize that for God to be a God who can save us, he needs to be repelled by the sin in us, right? Such is the power and the glory of God. It's kind of like when you wake up in a completely dark room and someone opens the curtains because they despise you and the sunlight just comes bursting through and you become temporarily blind for a second or longer, right? Your eyes cannot withstand the brightness of the sun. But the sun is not the one with the problem, right? The sun is simply being the sun. It's shining, it's emanating light and warmth. It's that your eyes are not prepared to withstand the radiance of the sun's light. We were born with sin-soaked natures that can't withstand the light of God's holiness. We need someone to purify us so that we can stand before God without dying because the holiness of his light is so bright because the separation that it creates is so great. It's like a universe apart, our sin compared with God's holiness and purity and perfection. It's not even close how far apart it is. And so when we read the first 18 verses of John, that's what John's trying to do. He's trying to get us to this place in as much as we can fathom it in our brains, which is that you have Jesus who is God in the flesh who came down to us cloaked in our flesh so that we could actually get near to God. That's what had to happen. So that we could not only come into uh, contact with God in the flesh, but that we could come in contact with God the Father himself. That's what had to happen. Some of you can't stand to drive a dirty car. Probably not enough of you. Some of you can't stand to be in a kitchen with dirty dishes. You can't stand to wear clothes with stains on them. I literally don't care about that last one. Um, imagine God, who, by the way, Paul in his letter to Timothy calls, listen to this, the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings, Lord of lords, who alone has immortality. And he says this, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. Do we know who we're talking about here? I mean, do we have any conception? Well, very little conception. But we need to have the conception that we can have of it through the language that God has given to us to understand it the way we can understand it, which is that God is God. And he came down to us through the person of Jesus Christ. How does that happen? How does the creator draw near to his creatures who bear the stain of sin, right? And yet, loving us enough to plan a way to restore a relationship with us and change our title from children of wrath to children of God. How does that happen? Well, he did that by sending his son, the word who became flesh, but the word who never became stained by sin, but who took God's wrath upon himself on the cross 
so that we might be reborn as children of God, be declared righteous, have our children of wrath status revoked, right? Paul says in Ephesians 1, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. This is what only Jesus could accomplish. Imagine that. We don't imagine those things enough. You know, we were given imagination for a reason, right? It's not just to create beautiful art, but it's to imagine with the limitations that God has given to us in our mind, this thing that he did with Jesus Christ. Imagine the son of God coming to earth, born as one of the human beings he created, like we learned last week. And then being murdered by the hands of the human beings he created so that he could recreate a new creation that is righteous before God. Imagine that. Who does that? Who does that? Only Jesus. So through faith, we have been reborn and declared righteous. Our status, our title has changed. We are children of God And finally, it's because it was God's will to save us. All right, so we're going to take a little deep dive into this thing about God's will and why God allows certain things to happen and why God allows certain events to unfold in ways that just boggle us because they they feel crazy and they feel like bonkers to us. And then we're going to tie it into what this tells us about God's will as we consider Jesus Christ So just follow me on this little like mini journey as we go down into this, as we unpack 13 here, verse 13 in John, which says, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Because if you go back to Ephesians 2, verse 8, Paul says this, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So the problem of evil, let's chat about that for a minute here. The problem of evil gets discussed quite a bit, which is if God is loving, why does he allow bad things to happen to good people? You've probably heard that. You've probably asked that maybe dozens of times in your life. Maybe you've been in conversations where that's come up or you've, you've watched clips of people discussing that on YouTube, or you've been at churches where that's discussed, or you've been in in college classes where, where the idea of that philosophically gets fleshed out. Why does he allow bad things to happen to good people? Well, it's either because he's not powerful enough to stop bad things. Here's just some reasons. Or if he is, he's not loving enough to care. So there's probably other reasons, but those are the two we're going to focus on this morning just for a minute. What we learned in the last few minutes, though, all right, is that bad things don't happen to good people because, first off, there are no good people in the spiritual sense of the word. So in the way that we think of good people, the way that Scripture presents to us good people, which are people that are able to work themselves into a standing before God that is not guilty. That is how the Bible would say 
declare someone whether they're good or what we would say is righteous, right? The Bible says actually, the Bible well actually asses, right? And it says, well, there are no good people in the spiritual sense of the word. Anytime we say there is a good enough person to stand before God on his own merit, we just basically said, okay, so that means Jesus Christ died for everybody but that guy. Scripture has a problem with that, right? King Solomon said this in the book of Ecclesiastes. He said, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. But we still wonder, don't we? Why God doesn't prevent bad things that seem against his character and will from happening? How do we explain that? Well, we could spend a lot of time on this, but to keep it timely, to keep it focused on God's will, we have to remember this. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, every man and woman afterwards were conceived with hearts to have a natural bent towards rebelling against God. And sometimes this heart condition can lead us to overwhelmingly horrific results, right? We all know this. The evil of some men's and women's hearts can lead to actions that are beyond what most of us could ever conceive of. We could say the Holocaust is an example of that, for example. So we might ask, okay, why did God's will allow something like that to exist for as long as it did? Eventually, Hitler was defeated. But not before six million Jewish men, women, and children were murdered. Why? Why, Martin? We don't know why. When we see a loved one suffer, we see a nation suffer under the hands of someone in whose heart sin has just escalated to a point of unimaginable darkness. We don't know why. We're not given the why, but we wonder why God doesn't defeat them sooner, doesn't heal them sooner. It leads us to ask why. We read about Job in the book of Job, who, by the way, was a faithful follower of God right? Who suffered extreme levels of personal tragedy. He asked the same question. He said, God, why? And God doesn't tell him why. And God doesn't tell us why. But when we demand the why, and we say, God can't be powerful. He can't be loving if he doesn't give us an answer. What we're really saying is that we want a God of our own making who is obligated to give us information because we believe we're entitled to it. And the problem with that is if that was the case, then we should ask ourselves if he would be a God who could actually be trusted because it would mean he could be manipulated into telling us what we want to hear, whether it was true or not. And by the way, that kind of God sounds great sometimes until you start thinking about what it would say about God if he became whatever you or I believed he should be. It would eliminate the need for this thing called faith, wouldn't it? 
it would eliminate the need for this thing called grace. And so again, this is a very brief unpacking of these things. But it leads us to some conclusions, one of which is that God must have a higher purpose than we can fathom for allowing what he allows since he is God and we are not. Isaiah 55 helps us when it says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. So the Lord declared to us, he said, you are not going to understand everything that happens and unfolds on this earth. But you are still called to trust me for those things that you can't understand. With that said, here's what we do know about God, even though we don't know the why. Here's what we do know about God because of Jesus. We know that he cares deeply about our suffering, about your suffering, which he proved by sending Jesus to suffer a violent death so that someday our suffering might end for all eternity. So this gets us back to God's will here in verse 13, which was to end our suffering by sending we're going to read in chapter 3, his only begotten son to suffer in our place. That doesn't simplify the complex things that happen to us. It doesn't. It means that given all of that, God sent Jesus to be the one who comforts us when we get no answers to all the whys of the world that go unanswered while we are still alive in the world. I don't know why God allows the suffering and tragedy that he does. And you don't either. But we do know that he didn't stand idly by and let it go unremedied forever. And it is because he made a way for our suffering to end forever that we can trust him when it doesn't end, listen, in the moment. God's will was to rebirth you so we step back and we wonder why God allows events to unfold the way they do. But we don't as often consider that his will in all of this, through all of this, in the midst of all of this, was to send his son to save creatures like us that he had no obligation to save. We forget that. It's like the children of Israel, right? Those complaining Israelites. The children of Israel groaned and complained because they'd been delivered from Egypt and after three days they're in the middle of the desert and they have no water. They said, hey Moses, here's a question. Did you bring us out from Egypt just to let us die in the middle of the desert? Three days after being delivered from this back-breaking oppression, they forgot what they had been brought out of. I think we, so often, we, we forget to focus out. We forget to see the bigger picture of what God did in the, in the most cosmic, universal sense of the word, sending his son to, to bear human flesh, to bear God's wrath on the cross for our sins. It's the most beautiful thing ever written, ever painted, ever created. 
because we get so entrenched in those things that cause us pain. And you know what? God understands that because those things that cause us pain are real things. And he's not dismissive of those things. And if you were somebody who just stands back and goes, man, I've been through so much. I don't know how to explain it. Somehow Jesus helps us to explain it. Because you are not someone of who God looks down and says, you know what? Just suck it up, buddy. What kind of God would that be? It would be a harsh God. It would be a God that was just giving us what we deserved rather than what we don't deserve. Which is why we talk so much about grace. Because Jesus is the pinnacle, he's the epitome, he's the definition of grace that changes our outlook on God, right? It changes how we think God is moving through the world and through the universe. It gives us a deeper understanding. It gives us a deeper love when we understand, like we're told in the book of Isaiah, that it was God's will to crush him. In order to atone for our sins. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. It's a miracle that God saves anyone. It's a miracle that y'all are sitting here if you're saved. It's a miracle that I'm standing here preaching God's word. It doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. It shouldn't be. If you look at the track records, if you look at what we've been through, if you look at the thoughts of my heart and my mind, it doesn't add up. It's a miracle that God gifts anyone with salvation, that it took the death of his own son in order for us to receive and then believe in. If God planned to save you at this great of cost, what must he have planned for all the other unanswered questions in your life that you still have? 1 John 3, 2, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We have this hope People who have been transferred from children of wrath to children of God have a hope of becoming more like Jesus and having our eyes open to all the things that we just don't have the ability or the capacity to see right now. I have a friend who has this uh, kind of this boutique kind of woodworking company out of Columbus and he just... He makes this amazing, he does this amazing thing with wood and all these amazing creations that he makes uh, with wood. It's, it's astounding. This guy takes a piece of raw wood and he just fashions something beautiful beyond belief out of it. So when he finds a beautiful piece of wood, and sometimes he'll post on Instagram, hey, look at this piece of wood I found, I'm going to do something with it. But when he posts that piece of wood on Instagram, I am confident based on what I know about this brother, that he is going to create, he's going to create and craft something beautiful from it. How do I know that? Because his reputation precedes him when it comes to woodworking. I don't know how he does it. I'm not a woodworker. Um, because the wood is typically just, it's raw, it's incredibly unfinished. 
And then we think about God in that same light. We think about God being the craftsman of people's hearts who need refashioning. I don't know how or why he transforms a person's heart. I just know that he does it because he sent Jesus to do it and because my heart has been transformed and because I'm becoming more like Jesus and less like the person I was, a child of wrath. Can you even believe that God took you and transformed you the way he did at the cost it took him to do it? Because his will was to do this for you. And because that's true, how can he not be trusted for all the things that we don't have clarity on because we are so limited in our humanness? This is what we know. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Paul.